Now, over the last couple of weeks and the next couple, uh, and today, we've been doing a, a little bit of a spiritual health check. We've been looking at the whole idea of what does healthy look like in terms of our Christian life, in terms of our church. We're asking the question, you know, what are the symptoms of spiritual health? What does it look like? Does it mean that our church is growing? Does it mean that there are more people on staff, more money in the budget, more ministries happening? It's really easy to look at those things and say, oh, yes, okay, that means this is a good, healthy church. Now, I introduced you to a friend of mine. Uh, there he is on the screen, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor back in the 18th century, the 1700s, back in the United States at a time of great uh, upheaval and revival in the church. It was a time when many, many people were professing faith in Christ, when churches were full to overflowing, where uh, there were really uh, quite incredible spiritual experiences happening. Uh, and Jonathan Edwards, he asked the question, is this from God? And back in the first century, the Apostle John was asking similar questions. He was saying, and he was talking to a church in what we now consider Turkey, but in what the Roman province of Asia Minor, he was there talking to them about what real church, what real Christianity looked like. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks that if the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives individually and in, in the church, that we will be uh, growing in our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's number one mark. If that is happening, we can say definitively, this is of God. Number two, we saw last week that if our hearts are being turned to love him more and turn away from the empty things of this world, we're turning to God from the world, we can say conclusively, this is of God. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And today we're looking at our third mark. And I've called it a church committed and individuals committed to truth. I've got five points for you this morning and I double checked my slides to make sure they're the real five points rather than just rehashing the previous week. If you weren't here last week, you didn't witness my mistake, but I've just shared it with you. So that's good. Uh, competing voices, certified witnesses, listen with care undergoing a spiritual and prescriptions of grace. So let's jump in with competing voices. Now, we live in a world where there are many, many people telling us different visions, different ideas of the good life. There are people out there uh, from pastors to politicians, sages and philosophers, self-help gurus, spiritual advisors, life coaches. You could list an endless number. And they're all telling you, this is the good life and this is how to get there. They're giving you a, a picture of a desirable goal. 
and they're saying that is what you should want. That is what good looks like. And they're telling you how to get there. They're orienting our hearts around a vision of the good life. But there's so many different voices. Who do you actually listen to? Our culture answers this question by actually saying, well, just listen to the ones that suit you. If you like them, listen to those ones. If you don't like them, just ignore them. You know, if it's true for you, it's true for you. But don't you, don't you try and tell me that I should listen to who you are telling me. I can listen to my own people. You listen to your own people. This is a, it, it's an idea that uh, the, the boffins out there called relativism. There's no right. There's no wrong. If it's true, it's true for you. You notice the irony in that though? Because that's a statement that is true for everyone. You know, our society is out there saying, listen to whoever you want to. If it works for you, it works for you. If that's what you want to set your heart on, go for it. As long as you don't hurt anyone else. Our society largely has ditched the idea of truth with a capital T. And has largely done away with the idea that there is one ultimate good. But it probably doesn't surprise you that the Bible has a different picture. The Bible will want to tell us that there is one ultimate good and that is God himself. And that a good life, the best life, a life that is blessed by God and is abundant and overflowing, is a life that is directed towards him. John wrote to a church that was like our church, surrounded by lots of different visions of good. Lots of different options for how you walk to get there, how you live to get there. But John, he synthesizes all the options. Instead of saying you've got this one and this one and this one and this one, and you get lost in the morass of ideas that are out there, John says ultimately there are two sources There are two options. One is, it's from God. The other is, it's from the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, which voices are we listening to? Because John tells us that if we're listening to God, we're listening to light and life and goodness and truth and righteousness. But if you take what John says seriously about the world, he talks of the world in terms of darkness, in terms of sin, in terms of evil, in terms of falsehood. The world for John is opposed to God, opposed to his purposes, opposed to his people. John will tell us, There is no ultimate blessing found from the world. John gives us this picture, these two competing ideas of God, of the world, and he will tell us there is no neutral ground. I don't know if you agree with that. You might kind of think, okay, Cameron, 
like out there, the voices that I hear, you know, they're not all peddling, you know, totally anti-God kind of ideas. Well, can I tell you, uh, apart from reading like an instruction manual on your new microwave, pretty much anything you read has a whole system of values behind it. Pretty much everything you watch on television has a whole system of values behind it. Let me, let me illustrate. Yesterday I watched, uh, it's a great movie, I, I really do enjoy it. It's one I've watched many times and it still makes me actually laugh out loud. Uh, has anyone seen Yesterday? You know, uh, about two people. If you haven't seen Yesterday, you need to go and see Yesterday. I saw Yesterday yesterday. Uh, and uh, it's a movie about uh, an incident that happens, which means the world, except for three people, forgets the Beatles ever existed. Uh, and uh, this one man who's a musician, who's been a, a B-grade musician, is just about to give up. He's one of the three people who remember that the Beatles' music and then he starts peddling it off as his own, okay? And it's a, it's a really good movie. And there's lots of things in the movie that I would look at and say, yes, I can agree with that. But interestingly, as you go through, there's a part in the middle, and there's not a massive spoiler, the main girl and the main guy, the, the, the director of the film has set it up that you want them to sleep together. There's this crisis, this moment in their relationship, and everything has been leading to this point. But as a Christian, I have to stand back and say, you're telling me that their ultimate good is found in that sexual expression at that moment. I have to see that what God tells us is different. They're pushing an idea of the good life, which involves a different view of sexuality, even though much of the movie lines up with values that I think the Bible would commend, we need to recognise that everyone is pushing something. Every voice that you hear, you hear out there, is pushing an idea of the good life and how to get there. Yesterday was saying the good life is found in relationships. And we want to say there's, there's truth in that. But it's a relationship apart from marriage and the commitment that comes there. Okay, we have to disagree there. That's just an illustration. But John sees that these voices ultimately are coming from God or the world. So how do we know? Because if we want to listen to God, if we want to listen to the message that brings us to light, life, goodness, truth, righteousness, and not darkness, sin, evil, and falsehood. We need to make sure we're listening to the right voices. And John had this situation in the first century church. There were people who were standing up and saying, I speak for God. The Holy Spirit has told me something and I'm sharing it with you. And John's writing to the church to actually help them work out, is that true? Brings us to point number two, certified witnesses. Let me read to you. Uh, John here in 1 John 4 verse 5, speaking of these false teachers, because that's what they are. He says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. 
And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. See, God, uh, John here is saying that he is from God. And if you listen to God, you listen to him. And if you don't, you're not from God, you're from the world. Breathtaking claim, isn't it? That's just a big thing. John says that he is a certified witness to God's version of the, the ultimate good. He is the guy who is authorised to tell you, this is how you get there. John says, if you are of God, you listen to him. By what right? What, what gives John the right to say, he's the man? Listen to him. Well, let me give you some reasons. The Lord Jesus, the Last Supper, he commissions those 12 disciples. Oh, 11, actually. Judas had left at that point. And he says this in chapter 15. He says, when the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that's the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He says the Holy Spirit will testify, yes, but you 11 people, you have been with me from the beginning. You are the eyewitnesses. And so when the Apostle John writes John's gospel, he gives us a reason for it in chapter 20. He writes this little aside in the middle of the narrative, in the middle of the story. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I am the authorized witness. I've written these words down in this book. So that you may know Jesus, God's king. And through putting your trust in him, through believing in him, you may have life in his name. You may truly have the good life that God promises. It is through faith in Christ and that comes through the witness that John bears to, to him. That's a witness that is not just done by words but John tells us and Jesus tells us it's a witness that is born by the Holy Spirit Jesus says in verse 12 to 14 in chapter 16 he says I've got more to say to you more than you can now bear but when he comes the spirit of truth he will guide you into all truth he will not speak on his own he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is to come he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So here we have Jesus telling the 11 disciples, you are my witnesses and the Holy Spirit will tell you what I want you to testify to the world. The words that you write, the words that you speak will be my words that I give to you and the Spirit makes known. And the Apostle Paul 
in 2 Timothy 3, he speaks of the scriptures in these terms. He says to Timothy, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. That's just Paul's way of talking about eternal life that John was talking about through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, is God-exhaled. The idea here of God-breathed is, uh, behind this is the, the Greek word for the spirit. We, would, we might actually say inspired, that what we have here is Paul saying that the Bible is the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you should listen to them. No other book makes that claim. No other book backs it up the way the scriptures do. And John, at the start of 1 John, he tells us why he is authorised. 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Who's the word of life? The word of life is John's way of talking about the, Je- about the Lord Jesus. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John is saying, I touched Jesus. I heard Jesus. I saw him with my eyes. I was there, the word of life, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. I was there. And Jesus' promise is that the words that John writes are the words that the Spirit has given him. And so as he bears witness, he does so not just so we know some random facts. He does this so that we might have fellowship, we might have a relationship with God through his word and that leads to eternal life the ultimate good john is saying he's the guy he's one of those 11 authorized witnesses if you want to know what is good if you want to know what is best if you want god's vision of the good life and how to get there listen to him in God's word. But we need to listen carefully. We need to listen very carefully. Because John's up front, and our experience will tell us there are lots of different voices out there. We are not immune. John talks about the spirit of falsehood. In 4 verse 1, he talks about false prophets, those who go out and who teach a Jesus who is not the Jesus of Scripture. Those who go out and distort the gospel of grace, those who preach uh, a different Christ. 
The question we have to ask and the question you must ask each and every time someone stands up and speaks in God's name. And I hope you're asking it this morning. Does this line up with what God through his word has already told me? Because God will not contradict himself. Does this line up with what God has already told me? I just want to step back briefly. I've seen so much destruction in individual lives caused by people who say, God has told me. I don't know if you've come across this. People who claim that they've had a direct revelation from God and therefore you should do X, Y, and Z. You know, the classic ones are, you know, God has told me that you all need to give me $100,000 before you leave, kind of. It's very nice, isn't it? I'm sure he has told me that, actually. No, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've heard of young men going up to young Christian women and saying, God has told me that we should be dating. (laughs) I heard a story of Charles Spurgeon uh, one day, uh, a man came up to him and said, uh, God has told me that I should be preaching next week. Spurgeon very wisely turned around and said, until he tells me, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Spurgeon was a, a master of the one-liner. Someone threw a, a note at him once and it had one word written on it, it said, fool. Uh, obviously, the person wanted to express what they really thought of Spurgeon. Spurgeon stands up in the pulpit and says, many times I've received a letter without a signature. This is the first time I've ever received a signature without a letter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, to be that that sharp. (laughs) But if someone comes to you and says, God has told me, the first question you need to ask is, does it line up with God, what God has already told us? If God is telling you something that is contrary to God's scripture, God has not told you that. And you can say to that person, no, I don't believe God has told you that. God will not lead us in a way that is contrary to what he has already told you. Okay, what about the God has told me that we should be dating You know, when we came to Trinity Church Brighton, we had a strong sense that God had led us here. I can't open the Bible and say, chapter and verse, Cameron, Karen, family moved to Trinity Church Brighton. What's the best I can say about that? Maybe. Maybe he has. Maybe he hasn't. I believe, and hopefully you can bear out, that it's been a decision that God has blessed but it's one of these things that if it's not in God's word it may be and you need to weigh those things carefully 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us not to despise prophecies but neither to be led into them he tells us Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to test everything and the first test John would say, does it line up with what God has already told you? And if it doesn't, it's not from God.
We need to listen carefully. But can I say there are two other threats that I think are more dangerous. One is the threat that I referred to before, the fact that there is no neutral ground. So every book that we read, everything we watch on television, the songs that we sing along to, the YouTube clips that we uh, spend hours looking at, all these things, they tell us what the good life is and how to get there. Some of them are really quite explicit, but some of them are quite subtle. The TV shows that endlessly renovate their house, what's the message? The good life is found in living in beautiful surroundings, in the travel shows, in the relationship shows. The good life is found in the perfect relationship. The good life is found in world travel. Well, that one's gone, hasn't it? Uh, They're all pushing visions of the good life. And sometimes the church has been guilty of taking the world's vision and baptizing it. And saying to you, God wants you to have the world. Jesus tells us quite conclusively that if we want the world, we can't have God. We've got to be careful because if that's what we crave, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have the perfect family. God wants you to have wonderful experiences. They're all good things. Don't don't hear me say you have to be poor and lonely and bored. Not saying that. But that's not the good life. And that's not what God promises. We need to be careful because if we set our hearts on these things we then use God to get them God becomes a means to the end what's my ultimate good my ultimate good is that relationship or my ultimate good is that experience or my ultimate good is my own comfort God your job is to get it for me our ultimate good scripture tells us 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be his children. And that is what we are. That we can call him Father, and he calls us son, daughter. That is the ultimate good. And our eternal life is found in him. Augustine one of my favorites, he said, we go wrong when we worship things that we should use and we use the one that we should worship. That's the danger. And there's another trap. It's what we do in our heads and our hearts with God's word. Let me give you four problems. We edit. We come across bits in scripture, particularly the bits that cut across the values that we hold dear and we just cut them out. (laughs) We come in there, we find another person who disagrees with that particular view. Take your pick. Okay. Gender roles, marriage, sexuality, they're things that are big for our culture at the moment. And we go in there and we just find someone who disagrees with that. Oh, but. He said, oh, but she said, we edit. 
And if we can't get around it, we just ignore it. We just omit. We skip over the bits that we don't like. It's funny, um, I, I'm an Anglican. I'm sorry about that. Uh, if that's a shock for you. Uh, you know how Paul in Philippians says that he is a, uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm an Anglican of Anglicans. I was baptised, confirmed, ordained, married. I've only ever worked in Anglican churches. Okay, we have a, a thing called a lectionary. Okay, as you read through the lectionary, you systematically go through scripture. That's a good thing, isn't it? Have anyone read Psalm 137 recently? By the rivers of Babylon, there we wept. You know, Boney M turned it into a song. The last three verses are brutal. The lectionary just omits them. We don't read those bits because they're just a little bit too rough for our Anglican sensibilities. Now, it's easy to pick on the Anglicans because I'm one of them. But we do this. We find bits in scripture that we just don't like and we just jump over them. We just focus on the bits we do and we ignore the other bits. We omit. We neglect. Sometimes ignorance, we say to ourselves, is bliss. I can't disobey God if I don't know what he wants from me, so I just won't read his word. It sits on my bedside table or it sits on my bookcase or in my bag. I endure the sermons. I'm not really interested in it. Even though I love being a Christian, I love being in church. I don't really want to know God better because that might have implications for me. So I just neglect it or we distort it. I don't know about you. I have tendencies to hobby horses. You may have noticed them. Uh, We all do. But sometimes those hobby horses, they take the emphasis off the main thing. I can remember in my last church, I met a man who loved creationism. And all he would talk to you about was creationism and the time frame for creation. I visited this man's house, okay, and he had a special room set up to preach the gospel of creationism. Now, I don't want to argue about creationism, but the Bible is not fundamentally about creationism. Creation is part of the testimony of scripture, but it's not the main thing. This man, I can't remember a conversation with him about Jesus, but I can remember lots of conversations about whether it was seven 24 hour days or whatever. Take your pick. Creation, gender roles, Christ returns, spiritual gifts. There's all sorts of controversial things out there. We can distort scripture by twisting it to suit our own emphases. We have to listen with care. So let's move on, wrap this up. Let's undergo our spiritual. How do we know if the Holy Spirit is alive and working in your life, in your heart and in our church? Well, Jonathan Edwards, he said this. He said, the spirit that operates in such a way as to cause in people a greater regard for the Holy Scriptures and establish them more in their truth and divinity is certainly the Spirit of God. If 
the, the spirit that is at work in your life makes you love God's word more. You are more convinced that it is God's word to you. Then that is the spirit of God. If the spirit that is at work in you makes you want to listen to the authorized witnesses. Edwards is saying, and I agree with him. That is the spirit of God. So let me ask you, I've got four little reflection points. Are you growing in confidence in the Bible as God's word? Do we look at it more and more and more and see its truth, its wisdom, its goodness? That we can know God truly through his word. Not just know stuff about God, but that it is God's word to us. When we read God's word, do we read it as an instruction manual, as a textbook? Or do we read it as God, by his spirit, speaking to each one of us? And so when we, when we hear a word of comfort, are we led to say, that is God comforting me? Or through me, as I speak this word to others, comforting them? This is a personal word of comfort. When we hear a rebuke in scripture, do we find ourselves saying, that is God rebuking me, God admonishing me, God instructing me? Or do we look at the scriptures as an impersonal text? Are we growing in confidence with the Bible as God's word? Do we say, as Peter said in John 6, and everyone's walking away, and Jesus, possibly in a moment of frustration, says, are you going to go too to the 12? You remember Peter's words? Where else have we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are mapping out the good life and showing us how to get there. Are we growing in confidence in the Bible as God's word? Are we growing in respect for Scripture's authority? Do we come to God's word with a reverence? Are we prepared to let it sit over us and speak to us as the word of our loving, gracious an all-powerful king? Do we set our hearts to obey? Do we have a growing delight in God's word? It's amazing uh, coincidence, preaching this passage, I got a regular pattern of Bible reading and it took me this morning to Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest book in the, uh, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is a psalm from beginning to end, 176 verses, I think. Every single one of them is a verse about God's word. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Three verses from 176. Can we say with Psalm 19 that God's words are sweeter 
than honey to us? Or are they something that we kind of tolerate? That they're kind of there, but they don't really excite us that much. Are we growing in delight in God's word? And lastly, are we growing in our commitment to know God better through his word? Do you look forward to coming to church? Because in church, as we gather together as God's people, the Bible will be read and someone will explain it and expound it to you. Do you look forward to that? Would you ever log on and find a preacher somewhere else that faithfully handles God's word and listen to them as well? Would you grow in your daily reading and personal application of God's word? Would you commit yourself perhaps to to memorizing, to learning by heart? Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart. The head is the way to the heart. He knows it. He meditates upon it. Deliberately studying it. Would you actually set aside an hour a week to deliberately engage in a more disciplined study? Would you join a Bible study, if you're not part of it, where you join together with others and go into God's word? Are we growing in a commitment to know God better through his word? Brings me to my last point. Prescriptions of grace. I've given you three L's, three R's. This is one, one R. No surprises here. Read. Okay. Let me share with you just something you can ponder on. Um, This is a quote. I'm going to finish on this. Australian research found that if pastors could do only one thing, to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow in their relationship with Christ. And that's what we've been talking about. They would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the Bible, specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their life. So, brothers and sisters, is the Spirit of God directing you committing you to God's truth that you might know him better.